I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well and that you're having a lovely holiday season. In this week's episode, I'm speaking with Sobia Ahmed, an interdisciplinary artist whose work explores how our deeply intimate struggles of belonging can inform larger conversations about migration, the tenuous notions of home, personal memory, and cultural porosity. While exploring her ancestral knowledge, Sobia reimagines craft rituals and intergenerational storytelling as acts of liberation. Sobia has exhibited internationally, including at the Herbert F. Johnson Museum of Art in Ithaca, New York, as well as the Woman Filmmakers Festival at the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. We are so lucky to have her as an artist in residence, as well as as a guest on the podcast this week. Hello, Sobia. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, LaShawn. Thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. And we're so lucky to have you. Can you start out by telling us a little bit about your background and where you're from? Yeah, I was born in Pakistan and I grew up there until I was 14. And then my family moved to the U.S. and I went to um, high school and college in Maryland. I am an interdisciplinary artist and currently based in between Pittsburgh and D.C. Nice. And you are currently one of our artists in residence for the Just Weaving Residency. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the project that you are working on while you are in residency with us. But I really wanted to kind of dive into your art practice, the way that you work, the materials you use, as well as what has inspired your art practice. Sure, yeah. Um, There are many things that inspire my work and my practice in general. I guess I should start by saying that I studied public health, um, and that's what my bachelor's degree is in. And uh, a lot of my practice is informed by my experiences as a public health worker, uh, as an education outreach coordinator in Maryland. And a lot of uh, my projects are socially engaged, and that is informed by my experiences of going out into various communities as a public health person. I'm currently working on a few uh, weaving-related projects, but I wouldn't really consider myself a weaver in any way. I I mostly am an enthusiast and a learner and a trialer and trial and error kind of person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so my overall practice right now is concerned with uh, slowness and silence. I'm thinking a lot about. Uh, how a slowness and contemplative practices can inform our inner world and how I can translate that in the process of making uh, for myself and then invite others into um, some sort of collective making process. Um, and um, I did study uh, art uh, in uh, as an undergrad, but I didn't go to uh, an art school, so... Uh, my experience is mostly informed by, uh, you know, my, my cultural background, growing up in Pakistan, um, my family's uh, traditions around a lot of uh, practices, and then also just thinking about making in a collective setting. That's interesting. So would you say that your experience working in these different fields is what kind of made you um, someone that started working in art and and started to integrate these different practices and and that is what informs your the interdisciplinary aspect of your artwork yeah i mean i so when i moved to the us uh i i felt like that was a very disorienting experience for me as a young person as a teenager and as uh, someone who was going through this massive transition, I felt like art became a place for me to really process for myself what uh, I, you know, found to be a very foreign environment. 
and you know transitions are hard as a teenager and you know going straight into high school I was really uh, challenged and so I, I started mostly focusing on um, grounding myself you know emotionally through art but when I when I realized that it had more like you know like it had this power that I could sort of channel for myself uh, I felt like that was something I were you know worth holding on to so uh, I would say that for me, it mostly started with just wanting to uh, express myself and, and, and ground myself in certain ways. But then, um, as I grew a bit older, I, I realized that it had these like these really immense therapeutic uh, inequalities. So, in college, I started taking art classes as a way to relieve stress, and then I realized that this is something I want to pursue. So, yeah, I think I would say that a lot of uh, the inspiration or like the drive to become an artist actually came from the need to express and not knowing how else to do the, that, you know, either in language or in other ways, but uh, something about uh, attending art shows or um, looking at artwork really pulled me in another sort of uh, way to experience the reality I was faced with. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It makes so much sense. And I think that that is such a beautiful space to create artwork from. Yeah. You know, I remember being uh, in college and uh, having a really challenging time and realizing that not knowing, not knowing that that I could be an artist, really, because Mm. it wasn't modeled for me. I didn't really have any, um, you know, family members who practiced art or I didn't grow up around artists in, in any way. So for me, it was very much a, you know, a foreign thing, both as a career and as a practice. So I would say I mostly stumbled through that uh, and just realized uh, for myself that there was something there. Um, and I also, you know, my parents were really encouraging in many ways. I don't think they had thought that their encouragement would lead me to be a full-time artist. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know what they would say now, but, um, and I also had incredibly supportive teachers. So I would say a strong sense of community, you know, people just encouraging me, pushing me to try things and experiment. Yeah. And, and, and I remember like, even as a child, I would have all of these, uh, ideas, my family and my cousins would all be playing and I would just be inside, like trying to make what I thought was a masterpiece at the time, you know? So kind of had to go back to that sort of way of just being with my own inner world. (laughs) It's so interesting that you mentioned that you didn't necessarily foresee yourself becoming an artist because I have a similar background as well. I didn't even really have a concept of fine arts or contemporary art until I was in college. Mm-hmm. Before that, especially growing up, arts was singing and dancing. It wasn't so much art galleries and art spaces and objects and sculpture. I was introduced to these things, but it wasn't in the way that I've come to understand and know art now. And so it's mm-hmm. so interesting to hear you talk about how you found yourself in this space. And then it also kind of puts me in the space of thinking about how much of art is just context you know mm. how much of arts how much of art is just where we see it and how we view it and so that's mm-hmm. you know <laughs> a whole other conversation um, yeah totally i mean i i have i feel very similarly in terms of arriving at art i didn't actually know anything um besides i had grown up seeing copies of miniature paintings in Pakistan, in people's homes, you know? Um, And miniature painting is a very specific kind of a a painting uh, originating from, like, uh, India and and Persia, you know, at the time. So I, I, again, like, without any exposure of really any context around that either, I just, that's what I had grown up around, seeing that as art. And I don't really remember going to museums or galleries as a child, you know? So I had no idea of what contemporary art was. I remember seeing, like, a video installation for the first time in college and just being blown away that this is art too? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like that is literally how my first introduction to contemporary art went. It was very much me seeing it and being like, this is amazing. And I think I can do something like this, but also it relates. Like it has so much reverence you know, mm-hmm. to me in this moment. And it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm also really curious about how fiber began to play a role in your work and how you integrated it into your practice. Yeah, um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that there was like one, you know, specific moment where fiber became um, part of my practice. It pretty much has been a, a you know, a, a material I've experimented with for. As long as I can remember, you know, from starting to like, uh, you know, use, I used fiber in a lot of my paintings early on. Um, I would collage them right onto the paintings, like, you know, pieces of fabric. At times I would also, um, print on fabric and, uh, so, but never really engaging with it in this like way of, you know, considering myself a textile based artist, but more so just one of the mediums that I used. Um, along with, you know, sometimes, uh, video work and performance and painting and other things like that. So, um, it's only very recently in the last couple of, uh, last three to four years is when I've started really considering the, uh, feminist histories embedded within, you know, fiber art and also how, uh, it really helps me slow down in my practice in ways that I had been wanting to for a long time because I was really tired and exhausted of this constant productivity culture that I had found myself very immersed in. So I've, you know, for the last few years, I've been thinking about what are ways for me to use mediums to actually address the concepts that I'm interested in directly. So that's when fiber like very intentionally entered the work. I the, I think the most recent work that I can think of besides the project that I'm working on for the uh, during the residency is the collaboration with uh, my grandmother. So her and I uh, were working with rice bags and I was weaving some maps and images into into these collected rice bags and, and it's although it's not fabric or cloth it is a fiber fiber material which became really exciting for me to experiment with and that kind of led me to other projects mm. and is this project Sharpe? no the that one is called wherever you are is called here and uh that is a series of what i call non-flags counter-flags anti-flags but this was also actually connected to like you know the the material of rice bags actually did come from uh my family history and my you know of rice farming uh both sides of my family are rice farmers um both parents sides so that was pretty much uh, a nod to the you know the ancestral ways and um around that way of life but i was also thinking about the idea of home and how uh, so actually, let me take a step back and I can sort of like just talk a little bit about the you know process of arriving at that work, if that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So um, around 2019, 2018 and 2019, I was thinking a lot about the idea of home and um, how it never seemed uh, like satisfying to think of home as, you know, like only through geography, but home is like... Um, you know, as an immigrant, where like you know how one creates home through memories or shared rituals with communities, either in like cultural settings or religious settings, but also how memories play a huge role in um, creation of home and how that constantly transforms. And you know, as I was thinking about that uh, and the story and the experience of migration for my family, um, I began talking to my grandmother calls India home because she uh, was born in India and had to migrate to Pakistan when India was partitioned into Pakistan and, uh, and India after the uh, in 1947 uh, after the British left the colonies that created there. So after colonization, uh, 
the continent, the Indian subcontinent was partitioned. And so the idea of home became even more uh, related to nationalism and more contemporary conversations around borders and nationalism, especially in my family history. So I started thinking about the role um, memory plays in that. And as I was talking to my grandmother, these stories began to emerge around uh, how this longing for home is actually an ancestral one and not just mine. Um, an experience of migration has been part of uh, the family for a while. So I kind of wanted to explore that. So rice bags became uh, the material through which I started exploring uh, how uh, these stories are woven together and um, sort of taken apart. So I uh, collected images from my family, photos and, and maps and things like that, and I started weaving them into these rice bags to create that large installation. Um, and then and then these rice bags almost like hung, I hung them as flags because I was, you know, they were white rice bags and I started thinking about the idea of a flag as a really powerful symbol of a nation or sectarianism and, and, and division. But what would it mean for us to reimagine the symbol of a flag about, you know, into uh, more of a projection of personal or communal uh, identity rather than a national one? Yeah. The the thing about your work that is so striking, even when I think back to your proposal for the residency, is how how much it feels like you are letting us into your world in this very intimate way that I think is really unique, but also so powerful. And at the same time, very subtle. Like mm-hmm. there's something very almost gentle about the way you are making these very very sort of like powerful and impactful statements and just hearing you talk through this project kind of really reminded me of how much when I was reading through your work how it made me feel and it brings me to one of the pieces that you previously mentioned entitled wherever you are And in that series, you prayed in public on the streets of Washington, D.C., and you documented it on a video. Can you go in depth, one, with describing this project and also like your inspiration and process around making the work? Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I I mean, every time I think about uh, like something deeply personal or intimate, I feel like there's always such a political dimension to that so the personal and the political feel inseparable because you know no matter how personal or intimate something uh like a you know one's immigration story or experience feels i think there's larger power structures at play often when one dissects that experience and that's actually what i'm interested in um exploring through the work um so uh i think that's what you were mentioning earlier and and the video of praying in public on the streets of D.C. I think that one's called Indoor, actually. And, and that was in twenty November of 2016. Mm. Um, so I think, again, like, you know, you were saying earlier about the context of, uh, you know, artwork. That That's the context of when I um, was, you know, in D.C. Uh, as a young person, as, you know, still in college, trying to process... The, the social and the political um, upheaval and like the the conversations around the 2016 presidential election. Mm. So I think the moment was very charged, and uh, being in the capital also at the time was a very um, disorienting experience as uh, someone who was still trying to process so much uh you know as as a student as a person who is an immigrant as a woman and someone who looks visibly other um i wanted to explore uh this idea of endurance and um prayer is uh something that's very close to me and i I think a lot about prayer uh both as a ritual uh of you know approaching the divine and communication with the divine but also uh, an expanded notion of prayer. So in that moment, I actually wanted to pray the Islamic prayer on the streets of Washington, D.C., and I had a friend um, record me discreetly. 
um, while I did that, because for me, it was more of an exercise um, in endurance and experiencing my body moving through those streets, right, where uh, the rhetoric, the anti-Muslim rhetoric and anti-immigrant rhetoric was uh, sort of being built and, and uh, disseminated. So that uh, was a very early work. I mean, yeah, in November of 2016. And I, I think back to that, uh, that time and I don't know if I was a bit naive or, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if I would do that now, but there is something powerful about that, you know, that sense of just being young and naive to just try something because you feel compelled to do it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm glad I did it. And looking back now, I'm kind of shocked at my own courage. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I, you know, I understand because I wish I could have some of my, the courage of being new to something and just kind of starting again. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's how weaving feels to me. You know, Mm. I'm, I'm not, uh, because, you know, I consider myself an interdisciplinary artist. I don't really have a medium that I like to call my own. I am always drawn to just experiment and play with new things, but also going in as a very naive person, not knowing a lot about how something is, you know, done. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as someone who just, you know, like that work that we were just talking about, I didn't really know what, like, you know, performance in that context meant but I just wanted to try that you know so I I think sometimes like that like that can take away the barrier of starting you know like being naive and being new to something allows you to play in a way that's exciting and um doesn't like you know like there is no hurdle in between you and the work in that way so you don't feel like you have to carry uh, a lot of um you know history around around what you're doing that makes sense you know Absolutely. That's one of the things that I learned early on in this journey of doing things that aren't necessarily um, a straight path, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. is that you kind of have to be naive in order to get it started. Because if you could see how long it's going to take or the journey or the hard times before you start, you will most likely be discouraged, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. It's like you kind of have to go into it being fresh and naive and and full of faith um, Mm -hmm. in order to really see it through. And then I think the real challenge is staying inspired and staying happy and staying or finding that place of security where you're like okay like this isn't something that is going to be easy and I won't have the sense of relief as as if I would if I was doing something a little bit more conventional Mm -hmm. Um, you just kind of have to learn to go with the go with the flow of things and so yeah Mm -hmm. I I absolutely feel that 100 percent yeah yeah I relate to that a lot too but I think there's, I mean, I'm curious to know what you think about this, because I think uh, we kind of take on this pressure to actually succeed a lot. And, you know, and, and I wonder, like, I wonder what your relationship to, like, the idea of failure is, because even, you know, framing something as failure is really um, discouraging. You know, it's like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? I could fail. But we never acknowledge, like, that there's an element of, like, play and learning even in that quote unquote failure you know yeah so there is that (laughs) yeah I mean I would say my personal relationship to failure is that I think I feel failure a little bit differently now than I did initially I think when I was younger and I was getting started I felt I understood that failure was inevitable and failure was how you learned. Mm-hmm. Um, and to this day, I think most of the things that I've done, I've learned through doing them wrong first. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even like, just even with farming, um, I, mm-hmm. I've been in farm programs. I've, you know, learned things here and there, but nothing prepares you for being in the field and getting the work done. And I had to fail a few times in order to get it right. I mean, even this season, 
I haven't done another update since the last one, but I feel like in the last episode that I recorded where I was talking about how things are going, things have gone drastically different mm-hmm. by the end of the season than they were then. And it, and I had a couple failures, but the failures taught me things. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example is I started off using a bio mulch as opposed to my usual growing technique, which is mulching with paper and hay. Basically weed control mm-hmm. because I'm organic. I don't spray anything. So I literally go out there and I pull up the roots. I don't even use a tool most mm-hmm. of the time. And I'm growing on a much larger amount of land. The goal was to do an acre, but I had to size down. But I grew in more concentration than I would have if I would have used the whole acre. And I also ended up going back to my old growing practices because there was no reason for me to leave them. And so I had to waste the money that I did to till and to get the bio mulch and to do it in this way, just to learn that I was already doing it how it needed to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was a failure, but it ended up being a a success. And I think that's also in my art practice, you know, Mm -hmm. I've learned how to do so many things through failing. And I think one of the things too, maybe a little bit of advice for anyone listening um, who's getting started in art or maybe getting started on a weaving project, a beginner weaver. I noticed that I get so much anxiety around getting started Mm -hmm. Um, something for the first time, like starting a project, doing a new style of something, trying out a pattern, anything. I get so much anxiety that I don't just get in there and get started. And I've learned that allowing that anxiety um, or that fear of getting started really is, it's not constructive because whatever it is, is what it's going to be. And so mm-hmm. if you get started and you do it, it's probably going to be just as good as if you were to wait for whatever it is you're waiting for to try to make it perfect. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. Oh, I relate to that so much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even with like, you know, sewing, garment construction, like when I first started um, design school, I remember my first two years just being afraid of sewing seams because mm-hmm. I wanted them to be perfect. But the more that I saw clothes in stores, and I mean like expensive clothes, luxury clothes, Mm-hmm. Um, even looked at like some of my professor's garments. It's like everything has a hand to it. Like you can see maybe, you know, what, what we would call an imperfection. I would just call a personal imprint. You know, mm-hmm. it's like everything, nothing is exactly perfect, you know, unless it's, mm-hmm. you know, the only time I see perfect lines are like when they're digital. You know what I'm saying? But mm-hmm. in, in life and in the world and in physical objects and the things that we make, there mm-hmm. are imprints. And so don't be discouraged by. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, everything you're saying really resonates with me, actually, especially about the project that I'm doing mm-hmm. during the residency. <laughs> you know, um, the, the Charpay project, it, like some, something about like, you know, the imprint, the idea of the human touch and, um, like the imperfections and everything feels very relevant and present and something I actually had to work through and get over, um, in my process in many ways. Yeah. And I also, (laughs) I wanted to say too, because when I first saw your images for Charpai, just saw the the structure, which I will ask you more questions about in a few. But I remember thinking like, wow, this is so beautiful. And it's interesting because you, you know, were saying like, I'm a beginner weaver. I don't know much about weaving. But when I look at the images, which anyone listening, you will see on the website when this episode goes up, it's a beautiful woven structure. Very beautiful, very beautifully woven. And so I would love if you could talk about the materials used, the history behind it, as well as, you know, literally how you make it. Mm, yeah. Thank you. So um the the project that I'm working on and I have been for the last almost year now, because it is a very slow process, is um this uh 
woven structure that it's a, a wooden structure uh, of a daybed upon which a webbing, a cotton webbing is woven. And it's called a charpai in Urdu, and I grew up around this object. It is um, a woven daybed, but it is also many other things. And that's exactly what really excites me about it and pulls me towards it is the, the ways this object transforms to meet the needs of the moment. I grew up around it watching uh, my grandmother clean rice or dry chilies or um, uh, hosting people and using it as a, a place of gathering, a place of storytelling. And, and I've seen it used, you know, used in countless other ways, like um, stacked up to like become a storage space or put it on its side to become something else and uh, like a like a divider in a space so for me a lot of memories personal memories and cultural history is tied to this object but also uh, what I'm interested in personally at the moment about this is um, the ways it can change depending on the context it is in and I um, having really like zero uh, knowledge of both weaving and woodworking, decided that I was going to attempt to create this here in my studio. And I learned that it is a very hard process, <laughs> but the idea of embodied knowledge is, you know, becoming very present because as I was starting, I was asking my cousin back in Pakistan to send me videos of the process uh, because my grandmother there was having one woven for her. So I started tr looking at these videos to try and replicate that process here to create a job by here. Uh, but it felt very, it was very challenging. Um, mm. Yeah, and, and I, I did create a, a wooden frame myself here in a wood shop. And, you know, that, going back to what we were just talking about, like it, it definitely has uh, my touch in it. Actually, the frame, even as I'm leaving it, is kind of, the legs are warping a bit, and there's fractures in the wood. It's, it doesn't really fit as beautifully as, you know, a traditional structure would. But I'm finding that interesting and, and powerful in ways of, you know, like if I, if I, in ways that I didn't think I would, you know, at first it felt like a failure, but now I'm starting to think about it as, you know, like what happens to an object? Uh, like how does it transmute through migration and um, how do I recreate it in, in a space where that knowledge that is embodied is not available to me? So I, also actually traveled last winter, traveled back to Pakistan to my ancestral village to learn how to make it. And now I'm almost done weaving, but the, the challenge has been that it's woven with at least two people at the same time. Someone has to pull the rope from the other side for it to even actually work. So there's this like poetic, um, collaboration process that happens unless somebody is in my studio I actually cannot leave it mm. so that you know that at first like was a challenge but then I, I started thinking about this as the work itself because it is something that has to be made with another body another person present mm. so I started inviting people into the process of making it with me and now um, I am hosting uh, gatherings around it to sort of talk about the things that are, uh, you know, themes that are emerging from the work. Uh, you know, it, it's allowing me to extend invitations and, and create situations in which intuition and embodied knowledge and sort of, you know, collective improvisational rituals can um, become like alternative ways of knowledge sharing and uh, generation. So, uh, you know, I, I host weaving circles or storytelling circles and I, um, and, and the idea is to propose collective making as an expanded notion of prayer or, you know, slowness as an ethos for um, engaging with our inner lives and experiencing various, uh, you know, spiritual dimensions of social engagement. So, the, the, and, and also think, you know, thinking about larger issues, you know, even though the work comes from, you know, aesthetically or um, materially, I'm drawing on a lot of my family history and cultural history, but, um, you know, within the work are larger themes that I'm experiencing both, you know, through 
making on my own and thinking and writing, but also in these gathering spaces that, you know, issues like politics, rest and labor and global feminist histories of craft and, um, and, you know, like strategies of resisting, like, you know, overlapping systems of oppression, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, productivity culture or um, even intellectual hierarchies and Western logic. So um, the work, even though centered around this object, is actually becoming a lot about proposing a different way of thinking, knowing, being, and sharing. Mm. Wow. <laughs> sorry that was a lot I threw a lot out there no but it was I mean again it's like I think it speaks to what I was saying before about how well your work really translates it's so beautiful and it's again that really sort of gentle expression of something that is incredibly like profound and powerful because it's so deep to me that's when art is really beautiful and you know congratulations to you <laughs> <laughs> thank you yeah I, I have to say though like um you know it's taken me a very long time to figure out oh this is what the work is telling me you know or mm. and and I don't um have it all figured out in terms I mean there's lots of loose threads here you know and but I'm really becoming more and more interested in and embracing the process of learning as it's happening. You know, so much of learning is taking place for me, even in these gatherings that I'm hosting, that each iteration is informing the next one. Mm. And, you know, uh, something that's very new for me also is that I figuring out what the actual work is as those things are happening, as communication about it is happening, as experiencing in community setting is happening, you know? So there, there is this letting go. Like there's an actual unlearning happening as a new skill is being learned and something is built, you know, together. Um, I actively find myself unlearning productivity culture that I had internalized in so many ways that are harmful I was finding for myself. Um, you know, mm. when I started the work, I thought I was, you know, all right, I'm going to get this, I'm going to learn this pattern. I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm, and, and I'm going to like, you know, probably be done in a few months. And, you know, almost a year later, I'm still working on it and it's not done. And actually the slower I work on it, the more emerges from it. So I, you know, I, I what I'm thinking of it is almost like, like a bed of unlearning. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I'm starting to think of it as. Like, how can I unlearn everything that I had sort of taken upon myself that wasn't helpful to my process? And um, how can I let this this project teach me the ways I want to exist in the world um, and who I want to be as an artist, even? You know? Absolutely. And I think... Or I wonder, and you can chime in on this as well, but I'm curious if you feel like this is something recent and if it could be one of the things that um, is influenced by just the world in general and coming off of the heels of the pandemic. Because for me, mm -hmm. 2020 was a huge turning point for me emotionally, you know, mentally physically everything like I think 2020 just put me in a much more existential space mm -hmm. <laughs> and I too feel like I have been unlearning the idea of productivity in the sense that for me I worked 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 I had my dream and I wanted to do this and I wanted to learn this and I wanted to go here. And then being forced to stop forced me to really look at myself and the things around me in a way that I never had the time or space to do because I always had to be doing something. There was never a moment where it was like, okay, you can just be here with yourself mm -hmm. for this time. I didn't have that. I think when I moved to South Carolina initially, I had that, but 
immediately it was like, okay, how are you going to make money? How are you going to afford this? How Mm -hmm. are you going to fund this, this farm? How are you going to get to production and, and this and that? And so I think the pandemic, that whole moment, spending so much time with my family just made me really look at the things that I value differently. I do care about being successful still, but I only want it. I don't want it at a certain cost, if that makes sense. I care a lot more about being present for my parents and spending this time with them and having memories of my nieces and nephews. And the art can, you know, the art is, will be what it's going to be. But it's like almost like I don't want to be a machine. I don't mm-hmm. want to focus on, you know, like, I hate to admit this, but I remember I, I was talking to one of my friends about how I had always hoped I would make it on a 30 under 30 list or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I just actually don't, I, I'm not particularly motivated by, by that as much anymore. I think I just want to do the work and learn and I hope to leave things for other people who are interested in things like me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's really beautiful to, to, um, and you know, what doesn't get talked about a lot is that there is actually a level of pain involved in that process of unlearning and distancing yourself from this way of, you know, having been in the world, right? Um, because we're, we're trying to create for ourselves a new structure that does not involve the sense of urgency that we had sort of internalized. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I think like, uh, capitalism in general, just, you know, what, that we all suffer from it. <laughs> there is really like, you know, under capitalism, there is really no other way to exist, but to be, uh, involved in, um, and, and patterns that are like harmful in, in some way to us, uh, both as humans and artists and in every other way. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I definitely actually relate. I relate to that a lot. I, I remember when the pandemic hit, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of processing happening, but I, I distinctly remember feeling all relieved that, oh, I don't have to do this thing goodness you know mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. oh yes okay i actually don't have to run around and um constantly be hustling in a way that actually doesn't feel good and that got me thinking about um what exactly was you know feeding me as an artist in my creative process and what parts of the practice needed to go and how can i imagine for myself a long view of time in this whole journey and um you said something earlier, how can I be here? You know, you asked yourself that question and I asked myself the same question. And I remember when the pandemic hit, I was in DC. I was um, at a residency that was cut short, you know, and I couldn't see my friends or family. And around that time, there was, there was a lot happening in DC, actually all over the, all over the um, country because George Floyd was murdered. There was this really immense pain people were experiencing collectively and also uh you know there was like internal emotional and very personal things people were struggling with so i started you know actually processing that through just mindless paper weavings that for me was a way to just quiet the mind and just work with my hands and i realized in that moment i had missed so much of just you know putting the intellect on the back burner and just focusing on the body and just letting the body sort of guide the process of making. So I, I, I remember just realizing in that moment that I cannot keep going the way at the pace that I was before. And it sounds very much like, you know, you went through the same thing. Like, to what end are we doing this? Right. We, we right. stop. We, we don't really stop and ask ourselves like, to what end? Like, what is the like end goal here? And then when you ask, like, all of a sudden, when you ask yourself that question, it just becomes so clear that, you know, if something isn't serving, serving that process of, you know, learning, play, and, and, and connection, um, then why are we doing it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think, too, you know, we deserve that. Like, we yeah. owe that to ourselves, to... Mm-hmm. Um, 
ask ask that question and then answer it. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And 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 give ourselves the just the space to not know. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm tired of this obsession with knowing. I don't know. <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm. Just, I don't even know where the work is going. But that you know, it's like just taking the pressure off has been the most liberating thing for me, you know? Giving myself this deadline of, okay, this has to be done at this time is not helpful. And just knowing that I don't have to know I is actually very powerful, you know? Right, especially when it's your own thing. It's your artwork. This is uh-huh. your space. It's so interesting that we can even find ourselves in that relationship to our things when we control it. Um, so yeah. it, it is absolutely something cultural. And I think I definitely felt it very strongly living in New York and moving from New York and then slowing down once I moved to South Carolina. And I think it was like a halt when the pandemic hit. It was like, wait a minute. What are you doing? Why are you just trying to, you know, just push things out? And um, But it was through that when I really think I found myself uh, as an artist. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I have to say, I mean, in our previous conversations, you know, throughout the residency, um, I've, I've been really inspired by the way you approach your process and your work and the way you talk about it and how you came to this point. So I just wanted to say that and share that with everyone that you you have been very encouraging in this whole process for me as well, because I think it takes a sense of, you know, like community to, you know, like for us to be able to talk about these things as well as artists to say, you know, I want to make less and I want to make slowly. And I want to connect and I want to build relationships and cultivating relationships is where I feel like I'm, you know, emotionally and spiritually nourished at the moment. We need spaces like, and we need people to, you know, say these things to and discuss them with. So I have been very encouraged by this residency and and my conversations with you as well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm glad that, that I can, provide a space or create a space that gives off that vibe because I think in a lot of ways when I was thinking about how I wanted to structure the residency I was thinking about things that I wish I had and the spaces that I you know in the time that I wish I was granted and so a lot of having conversations with you all which I've had so many beautiful conversations with each of you individually and together I have also learned for myself and grown for myself and created space for myself as well. So I am so appreciative of that. Yeah. And I've also really enjoyed meeting all the other residents and and talking about a lot of these common threads in our practices and our processes. So um, thank you for creating for us the space that you yourself were creating for yourself. Thank you. So I um, am also curious if you have any new projects or anything that you're working on right now that you wanted to share with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm working on like you know film right now and process and like shooting and processing Super Eight film and thinking about eco friendly materials and sustainability in my own practice. And I've been using natural dyeing. Uh, materials to dye the rope that I'm weaving with, but also using, you know, caffeinol and kitchen materials like coffee and vinegar and lemon juice uh, to process film. So that's feel that feels like a very experimental and fun thing to be doing right now. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, mostly just thinking about like, how can I like really focus on materiality of, of the, you know, the work. Nice. And is there a place on social media or the internet that people can follow your work? Yes. Um, I have a website, uh, com. S-O-B-I-A-A-H-M-A-D.com. And 
Um, I'm not very active on social media these days. It is actually one of the things that I took a step back from during the pandemic, but um, I do every now and then update. Um, I on Instagram, it's sobia.ahmed.art. Perfect. So it has been amazing talking with you and having you as a resident as we do still have, you know, um, some time left together. Yes. But before we go, I do have one question to ask you. And it is the question that we ask everyone that joins a podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? <laughs> I feel like such an imposter answering this question. <laughs> so full disclosure, I mentioned earlier, I do not consider myself an expert um, in textile or weaving, in textile works or weaving, but um, I will say approach it with a, with a sense of play and um, just let go of the fear of failing if possible. And, uh, just immerse yourself in the process. These are things that I'm trying to uh, tell myself every day in the studio. So <laughs> they're kind of affirmations for me. Process is the work. <laughs> That's so funny. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. It's been lovely having you on the podcast today. Thank you, LaShawn. It's been great as always. And it's been a joy too again be in conversation with you thanks for having me and um for your wonderful questions take care that's a wrap if you're interested in seeing images of sobia's work or to read a full transcript of this week's episode you can visit the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 146 it's such an honor to bring these conversations to this platform I am so grateful for your support. I hope you all have a lovely holiday season and a beautiful start to 2023. Until next time, happy weaving.